Lesson 13, Healing Ourselves and Helping Others. John D. Berry says, At this moment, I am thinking of a man who is going through a severe ordeal in the way of nervous illness. Escape lies in himself, but he isn't making the effort. He could tell anyone else what to do, but he isn't doing it. This weakness is one of his symptoms. It's the worst part of his illness. It's practically the whole thing. As all doctors know, there are kinds of illnesses that, it would seem, could be cured if the victim would only reach out and take the cure. This man is suffering intensely from what seems like neurasthenia. For hours at a time, he will lie in bed or on a couch, wide awake, but seemingly helpless. And yet, he's one of the strongest-looking men I've ever known. One of his friends says, his case is really mental, though the problem seems to be in his body. Isn't it really in his mind? Vehicles travel on the right side of the road in obedience to a law of the land and a natural law as well. To obey law is to avoid accident or punishment. To disregard law is to invite, court, and cause suffering. It is not possible to travel on both sides of the road without accident, so laws were enacted requiring pedestrians and vehicles to keep to the right. The right side of the road belongs to you. It is yours by law. You have your own place on it, just as everyone else has. The right side of the road of health also belongs to you, according to natural law. It is yours by divine right. Health is inheritance in which you have a vested interest. Don't lose your place in the forward march toward harmonious well-being. The highway of health is beautiful and easy to travel if you follow the rules of the road. Don't hurry and don't worry. If you do, you may run into a health accident. A few ways to keep on the right side of the road will be given in this lesson. William F. Warren, former president of Boston University, said, No command or entreaty occurs so many times in the Bible as the emphatic one, Fear not! There are millions of people in this and other parts of the world whose minds are forever filled with the fear of something. Where there is fear, there cannot be perfect health. Fear throws its black pall over mankind from the cradle to the grave, thus hastening the individual's march to the latter by every feeling it engenders. It mars and stunts multitudes of lives, makes people ill, wretched, insane, poverty-stricken, and inferior. The National Public Health Service recently sent out from Washington a bulletin explaining the evil effects of wrong moods on health, and especially in breeding nervous diseases, mental disorders, and old age. Though only a few years ago, the doctors derided the psychologists for teaching that the mind had a powerful influence in creating health or disease in the individual. The complete conversion of these material scientists was shown in the theme of this bulletin, which was. Don't worry. Worry is health's worst enemy. The law of thought can be used to create malformation just as a weapon that has been given to you for your defense can be turned by you against yourself. This is what has happened in most diseases. The sufferer has turned an impersonal psychological law against himself and created disease without realizing it. The first steps in getting rid of pain are the exact reversal of the first steps one takes to get pain. Millions have manufactured pain for themselves by thinking about pain, looking for pain, 
concentrating on adverse symptoms, and preparing for disease. These are the four steps which set the gauge. By means of these four stages, you can bring anything on earth to yourself, good or bad. By thinking of the bad, looking for the bad, concentrating on the bad, and preparing for the bad, it will arrive. And by reversing the process, you can bring the good. It depends on the direction in which you are thinking, looking, working, preparing, whether what comes to you shall be from the good or the bad side of life. If you permit yourself to dwell on the notion that you are weighted down with a tendency toward this or that disease, that you inherited a weakness, you are going to set the gauge in the very direction you do not desire. For our thoughts produce actions and actions produce results. I presume most of us have had to face some such possibility or even probability during our lives. It is certain, since our ancestors are all dead, that we could easily convince ourselves that there was in us a strain of whatever caused their deaths if we were so disposed. But we know that Mother Nature, who sends perfectly formed children to the deformed parent, will stand between us here as everywhere, and that our health or disease depends largely on our own ways of living and especially our ways of thinking. Without the slightest hereditary taint in their direction, one can bring upon himself certain diseases by this thinking, or he can, by the same process, ward off the fruition of a tendency that is really there. Some try to bluff or bully themselves into health. They are braver or more deserving of success than those who will not try, but they use a wrong method. Being faced with the idea that they have hereditary tendencies towards some malady, they say to themselves, I am going to look at this matter bravely now. I am going to be just as careful as I can. I will give myself the best of care. I will not expose myself, and I will be temperate and hope for the best. Without admitting it to himself, such a one is harboring a secret dread, a suspense, a ghost, that casts its shadow over almost every thought and action thereafter. To remove all this and revel in the genuine freedom whose counterfeit he has been simulating one need only to recognize the fact that the universal source of energy, whatever, wherever, or whoever it be, created us and is forever curing us of every malignant or destructive thing just so far as we permit it to do so. This source of life is the eternal enemy of its rival death and fights far harder for you and me than we can ever do. No physician and no medicine cures. Nature in the working out of law, heals. It is only when we obstruct its work by setting in operation against it our own thoughts and actions that it ever halts. And then it does so not a second longer than we compel it to. Whenever we encourage a happy thought or even relax the fear thought, healing sets in. You can feel its effects after every pleasant emotion. There is no incurable disease. There are people who perhaps cannot be cured because they will not be. There are men and women so egotistic as to find it difficult believe even in the power they created their own marvelous selves. Except as ye become as little children, there is no certainty that you can be free of disease. From the moment you become as a little child in your reliance upon the infinite, you will note improvement. The oft-remarked characteristic of most of the patients who were cured at Cui's famous French clinic was childlikeness. 
According to your faith, shall it be done unto you. It's not a mere phrase. It is stepped out of the Bible and walks, a living law, up and down the land. With your religious or non-religious beliefs, this law has nothing to do, nor is it affected in the slightest by them. It is a scientific fact and applies to every human being. The tragedy is that so few human beings can believe it. You may not be able to believe that the food you have eaten will digest because you cannot see how it could. But if you do your part, the laws of assimilation will do the rest. The same power that set these laws in motion to build up and keep your body strong is operating every instant to eliminate everything that interferes with health. What we must learn is not how to rend the veil and see how we can be cured, but to let go, to substitute for the thwarting, benumbing, fear thought, the realization that the same divine force that made us will begin to heal us the instant we let it have full sway. Every church, like every medical organization, will soon be teaching people how to heal themselves by releasing this break in the mind, said Reverend John Murray, pastor of the Divine Science Church, in a large meeting recently at the Waldorf Astoria. The age of miracles did not end with Jesus. He revealed a power possessed by every person. He healed by means of this universal power. Christ, Kui, Christian scientists, New Thoughtists, and psychologists, though they call it by different names, are all talking about the same law, and any and all cures performed are performed by that law, the law that thoughts of health build health, and thoughts of disease build disease. Any individual, anywhere, at any time, under any conditions can operate this law and get its corresponding results. Change your thoughts about yourself, and you will change yourself. You will change your feelings, your environment, your success, your health, your future, your destiny. Thousands of people are making themselves ill at this very moment by means of thought. Yet, if you should ask them if they believe in the power of thought over health, they would disgustedly say, I certainly do not. These very people have, at some time or another, experienced mind cure. Everybody has, though few have realized at the time what it was. The ailment from which they were suffering may have been a headache, indigestion, or cold. The unexpected arrival of a friend, the receipt of good news, a good book, or some other incident cured them. Or the trouble may have been more deep-seated or of longer duration. Nervous disorder, with all the accompanying physical disturbances, a big disappointment, mental shock, fear, unhappiness, sorrow, or chronic worry, with the cure affected by the descent upon him of some such thing as a great responsibility, the stimulation of a new love, a new job, a raise in salary, getting religion, or going on a trip around the world. Everyone who refuses to harbor resentment, jealousy, anger, or fear is giving himself mental treatment of the most effective sort whether he realizes it or not. The results are always more far-reaching and immediate when he does realize it, however. Everyone who looks on the bright side of things, everyone who says to himself when things look dark, I shall not let this spoil my outlook, is successfully applying a law that keeps him in physical as well as mental health. The cultivation of sunny, happy, confident mental attitudes has delivered thousands of men and women 
not only for mental depression, but from various physical ailments. How much is there in this mental stuff anyhow? A man asked a famous New York physician. Enough, said the physician, that you can tone up your physical condition tremendously and cure yourself of all manner of minor ailments by mental means. By this I mean thinking good thoughts and realizing that health, not disease, is the natural and divine plan toward which all the forces of the universe are at all times moving. Enough so that you can learn to master the emotions that cause many of your illnesses. Enough so that anyone can entirely eliminate depression, irritability, discouragement, sensitiveness, the cause of so many of man's maladies. Enough so that you can entirely remodel your disposition. Enough so that you can make yourself into a happy man, a much more successful man. Enough that you can be able to meet life with a poise and power you never dreamed of exercising. The human mind is well-nigh supreme over the human body. That is why ill-thinking makes us ill and well-thinking makes us well. The healing powers of the mind appear to be limitless. It is apparently a dynamic power plant of physical energies. Whenever the masterful command is sent deep into the energy chambers of the subconscious mind, the miracle of restored health is performed. This can happen as soon as the command actually reaches the depths of the subconscious, whether that takes years or months. The greatest factor of power in the subconscious mind is this realization on your part. Such realization of the law removes all obstacles, for it compels the arrogant conscious mind to step aside and give the stage to the great subconscious. Springs of vitality are everywhere within us, but we do not reach down and drink from them. Instead, we live on the surface of ourselves, operating only the conscious surface powers. We depend too much upon outside influences. We look for help from without, like the man who set a pail under the eaves to catch the rainwater, when all the while there was a deep well of cold water in his own backyard. Remember, health is the law of life. It is the purpose of life, of the all-powerful force that has created every living thing, including you and me. Place yourself in harmony with it, and it will do the rest. Disharmony in mind and heart, fear of yourself or hatred of others, closes the gates and shuts you away from your rightful inheritance. No person can be well who dislikes others, for hatred is a poison and will eventually kill the hater years in advance of his allotted time. The most pronounced skeptic will agree that the conscious and subconscious minds control a great proportion of the body's activities. Every physician and physiologist knows it to be true. Every medical school teaches the young doctor what we have seen manifested by every physician for 50 years, never to express a destructive thought in a sick room. If we would cease our destructive thoughts, we would have little use for him at all. A mind full of discontent, selfishness, impatience, anger, jealousy, envy, or revenge is a hotbed of disease. Give yourself the purifying experience of relaxing for a few moments each day while you give yourself and all that hurts you into communion with whatever it is that made you. You will find yourself amazingly restored, refreshed, and renewed. One thing we know, the power that created us is still with us. It renews every organ in the body at least every 18 months. It did not make us as a toy maker builds a doll and set us down here to live or die. 
It gave life to us, and it continues to supply us with life every moment as long as we live. This power, wherever and whatever it is, cures everything from the little cut on your finger to our broken hearts and diseased bodies. The name it has doesn't matter. I would not trouble too much about what it is, where it is, why it does the things it does, or anything else. I would just realize that the force big enough and powerful enough to create this marvelous universe and kind enough to put me into it and look after me in so many wonderful ways was, whether I could see it or not, my friend and protector. And I would just stop trying to run the universe and let that power do it, even to my poor little part of it, once in a while. After a sickly childhood, a frail girlhood, and semi-invalid adulthood, I so completely cured myself of illness that for many years now, I have lectured almost every night the year around without missing a single engagement, without having a cold, a touch of weariness, a headache, or any ailment whatever. I did it by following two sets of laws, those of physical health and those of mental health. I do not eat or drink harmful things. I do not abuse or neglect any organ or system in my physical mechanism. I treat each one with respect, respect for it, for myself, and for the power that created it. I keep in mental health by saying, thinking, and knowing the following concerning myself. My body shall obey my mind. Though 10,000 fall at my side, no disease shall come near me. I am immune to each and every germ in the air, the water, and food I come in contact with. The power that created me wants me to be well and strong, and I shall do my mental and physical part to help that power, not merely ask it to help me. I go forth in strength. I walk in health, happiness, joy, and peace. I will not only be health, I will talk health, live health, radiate health, and help others to health. I will be the living embodiment of physical and mental vitality. The idea of any bodily action tends to produce the action. Emotion always causes numerous and intense bodily effects, inwardly, whether we recognize it or not. Just as furious anger causes the outward physical reactions of grinding teeth, frowning brows, clenched fists, contracted jaws, growling cries, panting breath, purpleness or paleness of the face, without our being conscious of any of them. Fright often produces wild beating of the heart, a gasping motion of the lips, death-like pallor, protruding eyeballs, and the bodily rigidity known as rooted to the spot. Grief produces various physical reactions with which we are all familiar. If mental states can thus affect those parts of the body which we see, we may be sure it affects many other parts which we do not see, and that all of those destructive reactions separately and collectively affect the health. They create and throw into the bloodstream toxins which go to every part of the physical organism. Likewise, all constructive emotions, happiness, joy, contentment, love, generosity, etc., create and inject into the blood certain sustaining elements. It is the effect of these that causes us, a few moments afterward, to feel so strong and stimulated. There is such a thing as exposing yourself to health as well as to disease. Therefore, mingle with, associate with, live with, go to hear and see and come in contact with people who are well, 
and who know how they got and kept health. Those who understand and practice the laws mentioned here. Do not, save as a helper or healer, cast your lines with the sick, the ailing, the chronically ill people who enjoy their poor health. If they desire your help or will avail themselves of it, go to them by all means. Stating to them the laws of health will keep yourself reminded. But if they refuse your help or, for any other reason, cling to their illness, do not persist in spending time in their company. It will become evident to anyone who thinks about it that the threefold aspects of life in the individual are mental, physical, and spiritual. Physical health is largely dependent on mental health. Anyone who will enter enthusiastically into the expression of healthy mental attitudes can improve his actual physical condition in an hour's time. He who will adhere to these thoughts habitually and express them aggressively can cure himself of a hundred minor ailments, ward off more serious ones, and lengthen his life immeasurably. Fear, discord, anxiety, inharmony breed disease as surely and truly as microbes do, for they lower the threshold of our resistance, our one protection against the millions of germs, bacilli, and other enemies that surround us. We must not deny, overlook, or neglect the physical body. It, too, is an expression of the life principle, and its laws are as sacred as those of the mind. The body should receive proper care, attention, and rest, but if we are to get and keep health, we must also observe the laws that govern the conscious and subconscious elements within ourselves. The cleanliness of the outside of the cup will avail little if the inside remains unclean. Food, however wholesome, will poison the body if eaten to the accompaniment of furious anger, intense worry, jealousy, or revengefulness. On the other hand, men and women, deficient in one or several vital organs, have lived healthily to great age by cultivating calmness, temperance, serenity, love, and a sense of humor. Health is our inheritance. It is the normal, natural condition of all living things. We lose it only by withdrawing from it, by violating the laws of mind, body, and spirit. That the condition, not only of the mind and body, but of the spirit, exercises a tremendous influence over our physical well-being and will eventually make for health or disease, can be seen in two kinds of illustrations, one remote and one immediate. Do something you know to be very wrong and note how this affects your appetite, your bodily vigor, your ability to sleep, to breathe, to do your work well, to concentrate your mind, to walk erect, to laugh, to look people in the eye. The voice of conscious speaks to both body and mind. Contrarywise, note the mental and physical uplift that follows a good deed, especially one performed at a sacrifice to self without hope of reward and more especially one which the recipient is unaware of the source of our gift. In such instances as this, where no one but God and ourselves, or ourselves and the ruler of the universe, if you prefer, knows of our good deed, where all selfishness is eliminated, where spirit alone shares our secrets, there will be felt an unbelievable physical as well as mental improvement. I saw this law illustrated many years ago, where a young woman who had been ill for many years and exhausted every means known to Materia Medica regained her health as a result, quite certainly, of a generous, self-sacrificing act. 
For several years, she had been very deeply in love with a young man who, while he liked her, did not share her ardor. He was a clerk on a salary. She still had a few hundred dollars of the inheritance left her by her mother. On the day when he was to start East, he came to tell her the crushing news that he had lost the savings he had painfully gathered, every cent of the money that was to have taken him to New York to look for an opening in his work. He had withdrawn it from the bank in Greenbacks, and it had been stolen from his room the night before. He returned to his old position to start over again, heartbroken from the fact it would require at least two years to rehabilitate his bank account. His disappointment so absorbed her that she forgot herself and her illness for over a week, at the end of which she evolved a plan. It looked as though it might cost her her chance for recovery or even her life, but she decided to carry it through. A few days later, the young man called to announce, in wildest joy, news as good and unbelievable as the other had been bad and unbearable, that the thief had repented and returned the money. His excitement proved her ally, for it kept him from noting any lack of spontaneity in her when he read to her the supposed thief's note, wherein he declared his conscience forced him to give it back. The young man left the next day for New York. In his happiness, she found full compensation for her loneliness and for the realization that now, since she was penniless, she must, sick or well, earn a living. Within six months, her baffling illness had completely disappeared. She had gained in weight, youthfulness, and beauty to such a degree that when the young man returned, after a lonely winter in New York, he fell in love with her, and they were married. They have been very happy. But to this day, she has never told him where the returned money really came from. Examples of the more remote effects which wrongdoing and wrong thinking have upon the physical health are to be seen in the chronic illnesses of the selfish, moody, stingy, unkind person. Heads of many of the penal institutions of this country have told me that convicts are seldom well and that those whose criminal doings or thoughts extended over a long period before they were incarcerated are afflicted, almost without exception, with deep-seated diseases of long-standing. The admonition given by that most successful living minister, Amy Semple McPherson, and every great healing evangelist that you must obey your conscience and live purely if you wish to be sure of a cure is founded on an eternal natural law. That people who live in good health to a great age have, invariably, been of clean moral character, serene spirit, and possessed of gentle tolerance is a fact too well known to need repetition. It is equally well known that the selfish, the hoarder, the grasping, the cruel, the unprincipled, the vicious, and the ill-tempered die earlier than others. The rich man who refuses to be open-handed will find death loosening the grip of his fingers many years earlier than necessary. To heal oneself or others, one should familiarize himself with the limitations, or what up to now appears to be the limitations, as well as the possibilities of healing the body by mental and spiritual means. It is conceivable that there are in reality no limitations whatever. I am convinced that limitation exists only in the individual, not in the law, and that as individuals rise above their own personal, limiting consciousness, disease will for the most part be prevented, cured at all stages when it does arise, and that as the race develops, disease will completely disappear from the earth. Today, man possesses a very definite, 
tangible physical body, which reacts to his mind. He possesses a mind that acts upon his body, and he possesses a spirit that acts upon and reacts to both. All three are and must be recognized as interdependent at this stage in human evolution. The road to health is a triple track with the spirit acting as the living third rail. That the body, as well as the mind and spirit, is divine is proved in the fact that it renews itself from year to year. It should not be despised, but respected and treated as the thing it really is, a vessel for holding the living flame for guarding and keeping it operative on this earth just as long as possible. Because the body is sacred, the discovery of every law which preserves it and prolongs its life is a step nearer to divinity. Material science should be recognized as one of the many steps by which, from various directions and in varying degrees, man is reaching toward perfection and rising upward toward the power that made him. By obeying the laws of physical health, by turning destructive thoughts away from the door of his mind, and by recognizing his oneness with the life power that created him, whatever that may be, anyone can vastly improve his physical condition. When he can do the latter with faith, he can cure himself of disease. Ah, uh, you say, there's the rub. How can I have faith when I've had no evidence? I do not mean perfect faith but I do mean need not trouble you. Said the centurion, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. That is the spirit. Believe as much as you can while seeking for more belief. It will come. It will come quickly because you will get results immediately. Then your faith will be sensible and sane and solid because founded on experience, facts, which you've demonstrated. And it will grow greater all the while because you will use it. It will plant and replant, seed and reseed itself. Only be receptive and refrain from active opposition in your own mind, and results will come, bringing a living, vibrant, fruitful, unshakable faith with them to stay forever. Cui, the great little Frenchman, taught the most effective modern method for treating disease when he told his patients to rub the affected place lightly with the hand while repeating over and over in assured, matter-of-fact, monotonous tone. It is going. 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 The object of the rapidity of the repetitions is to exclude other contrary ideas, to prevent their slipping in between phrases, as it were. In a few moments, the pain either disappears or greatly decreases. If this phrase does not appeal to you personally, make up one that expresses just what you would like to have happen and say it in the same way. The results will amaze you. Many of those for whom I have prepared formulas or who have prepared their own in accordance with the directions given just above have told me they got results within five minutes. Some had to use their formulas a day or even two days before it seemed effective, but not one has failed to attain results. You can cure yourself of disease without a shred of real belief if you will put this formula into practice. Unbelief resides in the conscious mind, and if it steps aside only sufficiently to let the law get at the subconscious, remarkable results can ensue. Going only so far as to try the formula constitutes a sufficient abdication of the conscious doubting mind to let the law become operative, 
We do not need to know how or why this is so, and we do not need to. We only know it does it. This much we do know, that the subconscious mind controls the automatic functions of the body. It is the central power station from which come impulses that determine bodily health and strength, disease, or weakness. The subconscious mind, so long as we refuse even to try to apply it, is held in subjection to the conscious mind, which is skeptical because it has never dealt with any but material things. But once let this bigoted conscious mind step aside long enough to let us implant in the vast subconscious the conviction of health, and it is certain that our health will improve. From the complexities of the science of psychoanalysis, we give you these fundamental truths. If you will simply try them, they will perform miracles for you. You need not do it. In fact, you cannot. The law working in and through you does it all. The Earth's millions go through life little dreaming that they have stored up in the subconscious more power than is necessary for them to get all the things which they crave. These lessons will give to you the key to this strange inner storehouse of treasures. Thousands have profited by these simple truths. You can do the same. When mankind learns how to put the subconscious to work, there will be no more failure, poverty, unhappiness, or pain. Miracle men will no longer be necessary when we learn to perform our own miracles. The miracle man can help us only when he is near us, but when we learn how to use our own instrument of healing, we cure ourselves wherever we are, whenever we need to. One of the most vivid illustrations of the power of the mind once a healing formula is implanted in the subconscious can be seen in these four different types of men each of whom is suffering from the identical malady, but cured by four different methods. The man who believes in doctors is cured by his doctor. The man who believes in a certain medicine is cured by the medicine. The man who believes in Christianity is cured by an evangelist. And the fourth man, believing in Christian science, is cured by reading Science and Health. Each of them, without knowing it, was supplying the very same scientific principle, the law of the subconscious mind. He applied it in the way and for the reasons which most appealed to his subconscious and was cured when he communicated with his own God-given powers in the language that his brain would let pass. The self-same power cured each one as soon as the suggestion got past the arrogant old censor. Mr. Conscious Mind. We can kill or cure with thought. Thought kills some slowly and others instantly. It cures some instantly and others slowly, though nonetheless surely. Habitual thought stretched out over the years or intense burning thought concentrated in an instant, the results are the same. In thinking for health, it is better not to think always directly about a cure, but rather to go about it indirectly by thinking constructive thoughts of high aspiration and achievement. Concentrating his mind on success, especially when unforeseen developments in his business or profession kept his mind focused for days or weeks at a time on practical problems, has cured many a sick man. A heart full of goodwill, of kindly tolerance, of forgiveness to those who have wronged us, and of generosity to those who misunderstand us will help us to get and keep health 
while their opposites will eventually bring upon us various physical discomforts. Abnormal methods of thinking and living are health destroyers. From all such, you can easily free yourself if you will. Live normally, think constructively, love thy neighbor as thyself, and hate no man, even those who despitefully use you. Forget every unhappy experience of your past and recall every happy one. Get busy and keep busy in the present and trouble not too much about the future. Look at tomorrow hopefully, confidently, knowing that today is a glorious adventure and eternity the greatest of all. Helping Others Every really successful physician has recognized the effect of his own moods, words, and actions upon his patient. A good doctor first equips himself with the knowledge of the facts of man's physical body, then recognizes the suggestibility of mankind. He recognizes that his first address must be to the patient, not to the disease. Separate diseases are cured by obeying laws, but the patient must be helped by an individual doctor, such as the power of personality and the law of suggestion. No pains should be spared to gain a sympathetic understanding of the one we hope to help or heal. We must realize that there is no ailment from which a man suffers in which some of his malady does not depend somewhat upon his state of mind. This applies not only to the vast field of psychoneurosis, but to infections, organic diseases, heart troubles, and all other disorders. Thus all good healers, like all good doctors, will take into account not only the interplay between the body and mind of the patient, but the interplay between the physician's actions and those of the person he is trying to help. Many persons of great power who could help and heal others with unbelievable effectiveness never try to do so because they imagine that capacities for healing are confined to a few individuals of peculiar endowments or qualifications. On the contrary, Every person has some capacity to heal others, and this capacity will manifest itself whenever the laws governing it are complied with and the right methods followed. As soon as he learns how, every person can heal himself and help others to overcome various indispositions, disorders, ailments, and disease. Once we know this, each of us is under obligation to develop those powers for the sake of those with whom we live or come in contact and to exercise them for the good of anyone and everyone when the request, opportunity, or demand arises. No one liveth unto himself alone. In varying degrees, different talents inhere in different individuals, and this one is possessed to a greater extent by some than others. Each is responsible for it to the degree he possesses it, a degree which will surprise him if he ever puts it to the test. Certain men and women have forceful, dynamic personalities, and to this kind, some illnesses and some individuals respond most quickly. Other persons react more readily to quiet, simple, modest, soothing personalities, and still others to people whose natures lie somewhere between these extremes. Other things being equal, the very aggressive individual can be helped more quickly and completely by his opposite, and vice versa a fact which accounts for marriages and friendships between individuals of widely differing personalities. Opposites do not so much attract as complement each other. Competition is eliminated. Their traits supplement each other. 
their strengths and weaknesses dovetail. To be most successful in healing and helping others, whether toward health, happiness, or other achievement, you should bear the above facts in mind and be guided by them. In the treatment of different types of people, first of all, be sincere. That is, be yourself, genuinely, straightforwardly unpretending, but temper the storm of your nature to the shorn lamb, so to speak. If you are by nature loud-voiced, positive, masterful, all these will be welcomed and will inspire strength in the very timid who, by your example, will feel greater confidence in themselves. But when dealing with one who is a replica of yourself in these traits, whether in the capacity of healer, friend, teacher, or acquaintance, you should tone down considerably if either of you is to secure the utmost from the association. I wish to call the special attention of parents to the differentiation just mentioned. Children whose natures are distinctly unlike should not be treated at any point in the problem, in sickness or health, in exactly the same way. Many other kinds of differentness will be apparent in children and adults, but the ones referred to are the most significant in all our treatment of others. You or any other person of average intelligence can be instrumental in helping and healing others. The only persons who cannot heal others are the feeble-minded, and these, as we all know, are astoundingly successful in the treatment of animals, especially the pets they love. Accept the fact that you possess this power. If you cannot realize it now, and I can well believe that to many of you it is a surprise, simply try it sometime. You will never doubt it again. Study the rules presented in this lesson. Read and reread them until you know them so well that you feel friendly toward them. Apply them whenever, wherever, and for whomsoever you choose. Confidence will come with your first attempt. It will increase every time you apply your power. As confidence increases, you will find expertness in the use of your power increasing. And as both confidence and expertness increase, the power to help those in your own household or who appeal to you from outside it will express itself more and more. I do not say the power itself will increase. It is already there in far greater measure than you can realize. What you need is to learn how to use it, apply it, harness it, and put it to work for you. The principles cited in this lesson have been applied to the needs of people within the intimate circles of my family, friends, and private students, and to thousands of members of my classes. Having a horror of unscientific methods, especially of undependable healing methods, and having set the standard that I would confine myself in all my lessons to rules that never fail, rules which would work anywhere, for anybody, under any conditions when faithfully followed, I preferred to keep silent on the matter of healing until I had thoroughly tested every rule, method, and law. I therefore include herewith only those that have withstood every test over a long period of time with many different kinds of people. I shall cite comparatively few rules, but those few can be relied on to help any person to whom they are properly applied. Rule one, live as pure, noble, and kindly a life as you can. Think of yourself for what you really are, a channel through which the powers of help, healing, and inspiration are meant to flow. 
They will flow onward and outward to everyone with whom you come in contact just to the extent and in the measure that you open your heart and mind to the good in the whole world. Whenever you close your heart and mind to the power that created the world, to the good in yourself, the good in your fellow man, just to that extent, you close this channel and restrict your own ability for helping or healing others. It is not the most brilliant, learned, beautiful, powerful, or even masterful people who help you and me and everybody else most. Who is it? The pure, the gentle, the tolerant, the ones who have most of just plain, old-fashioned goodness, kindliness, sympathy, and love. When you and I are on the top wave, when things are sailing along, when we are well and happy and successful, we may find a certain thrill or excitement in the other kind. But when sickness, sadness, or failure comes, when we really need somebody, these harsh, selfish, brilliant folks are the last ones we want to see, aren't they? Someone who loves us just for our own little selves, faults and all, and who wants to help us, how wonderful they are in that hour. Part of it is due to our love for them, but a great big wonderful part, a part we've never understood, is due to one of the simplest facts in the world, that this person is good and kind and gentle to us. We naturally prefer our nearest relatives or oldest friends at such a time and for a reason few have ever analyzed, that we feel these people do care more for us than outsiders do. But anyone who truly feels, lives, and expresses this love for us, and especially if he is acquainted with scientific laws of healing, can often do the impossible for us. Rule two, whether healing yourself or others, have in mind two sets or lines of thoughts. First, the improvement of general health throughout the body. Second, the exact spot you desire to be healed or from which you wish pain to be removed. Concentrate definitely, positively, vividly upon the thing desired, keeping it in the foreground of the mind while entertaining in the background the command for perfect health in every other part of the organism. Rule three, do not waste time, energy, or power trying to force yourself to believe that healing will come to you. Some healers teach that this is necessary, but confidence in these laws is not essential to healing. The laws I shall herewith present are scientific, unchanging, eternal. Nothing and nobody can nullify them, for they concern the forces given you by your creator. Rule four, there are certain principles of healing and helping which can always be applied by anybody for himself or for others. Every parent, teacher, minister, physician, every leader in every walk of life should know and apply these principles in his contacts with others for his own unfoldment, for the good he may do, the lives he may save, the hearts he may soothe, the pain he may relieve. Every person who comes in contact with others owes it to himself, to his fellow man, and to the power that made him not to wrap his talent in a napkin, but to develop and use it. Be assured that you are not required to grow 10 talents from one, but you are expected to use that one if one is all you possess. 
Many of you will be surprised, however, to discover as soon as you put it to the test that you have many healing talents. The happiness and uplift that will come into your life and spirit from this knowledge, rightly used, is beyond computation. Remember this, you have some kind of influence on the mind and spirit, and therefore indirectly on the health of every person you come in contact with. As a matter of fact, and because of this, each of us is hurting or helping, weakening or strengthening every person we associate with. And because both of these powerfully affect the health, we are making people more well or more ill physically during every moment we spend with them. Many times in the life of each of us, we have felt acutely ill after a few moments in the presence of certain people. At other times, we have found ourselves miraculously relieved or even cured of pain after some particularly pleasing, loving, or sincere person has called upon us or talked to us for five minutes on the street. One hurt us, sickened us, another helped us, and one day we lost a perfectly good headache while talking to a dear friend. Each of us has been pleasurably or painfully aware of the effect of others upon us in this connection, but few persons have ever realized that they too exert this influence on everybody to a greater or less extent. So whether we have given it thought before or not, we cannot, when we look at this fact, refuse to recognize our responsibility. It behooves us, then since, as long as we are alive, we are influencing others to learn how we may always be a good and uplifting influence, mentally, spiritually, and physically. How to prevent our being even indirectly responsible for the unhappiness, illness, or depression of another human being, and how we may, through service to others, Find that peace and joy which passeth understanding, the peace to which no one ever attains till he becomes a helpful force in the world. You will find that certain people amongst your circle of acquaintances go up and down the land helping and healing their friends by their very presence, and others, by the same token, leave mental, spiritual, and physical wounds in their wake. That's sensible, decent, conservative, hard-headed business friend of yours, how he would laugh at the idea of one person's power to heal another. Yet he, with the best motive imaginable, makes everybody in his concern half sick with fear by his severe, cold, critical manner. And that jolly young salesman, wouldn't he smile at the idea too? And all the while he is helping everybody he meets to actual physical improvement just by his manner. A cheerful heart doeth good like a medicine. Rule five. There is a peculiar and definite magnetism in sincerity, goodness, truth, and honesty that can be felt but not described. Other things being equal, therefore, the purest, noblest, most consecrated persons will be the most efficient in helping and healing others. The obedience of such people to the highest laws gives them an authority that seems to speak directly to the subconscious minds of those they meet. It is equally true that, though they may help many, the false, the insincere, the pretender cannot rise to great success in this field and are doomed to ultimate downfall. As explained before, a faith in the law 
the formula or the methods which we use upon ourselves or others is not necessary to healing either ourselves or them. But when we are to be healed by or through someone else, faith in that person, in his honor, sincerity, and goodness, is absolutely essential to the best results. Therefore, if you would become a great healer or helper of others, you must be, first of all, sincere in your desire to help them, not merely to help yourself. The desire to help yourself in every way from personal unfoldment to financial returns is justified, fair, businesslike. The laborer is worthy of his hire, and no man or institution can accomplish anything in this day and age without funds. But if you are doing this more for money than for the joy of service, or if you are thinking a great deal more about yourself than of your patient or subject, your results will be meager. If by any chance one heals only for the financial returns, he will invariably fail in the long run. Because in such case, he would be concentrating not on the idea of healing, as the law requires, but actually upon these financial returns. And the law of healing not being operated could not bring the desired results. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that one should heal without remuneration. As a matter of fact, Americans dislike charity, and many persons are so humiliated by it that this consciousness restricts the subconscious through embarrassment until the best results are not obtainable. Americans like to pay for what they get and to get what they pay for. Furthermore, the greater one's natural healing power, the more does he owe it to the world not to hide it under a bushel. Without funds, he cannot go far. Without funds, he cannot reach many. And it is sad but true that in this country, unless he makes a fair financial success of his calling, thousands who need his help would not have sufficient confidence in his ability to approach him or ask for his help. It is a matter of putting first things first. He who puts a sincere desire to help others ahead of his own selfish interests will heal far greater numbers, and this will lead, without his giving it much thought, to greater financial success than anyone can ever have who thinks more of himself than of the needy who come to him. The first step, therefore, is to get right with one's own spirit. No man has ever yet succeeded in downing, silencing, or outwitting his conscience. No power under heaven will enable a selfish man or woman to heal or even to conceive great numbers of their fellow men for very long. The ring of the voice, the glance of the eye, the manifold movements of the human body all tell their story, a true story, which he who runs may read. Since we cannot make our inner selves over in a moment, since instinct is strong and selfishness a thing that is not to be overruled in a day, it will be well not to demand perfection of ourselves at first, but we should demand decided improvement in our own motives and keep at it till we have weeded out the dank growths that enjungle our minds. Do not wait before beginning your healing till you have made yourself perfect. Do not wait at all, in fact. Begin at once to help someone you do deeply love, someone concerning whom you are not selfish, and extend your ministrations as your love spreads to others. Someday, you will be able to love utter strangers because of their need of you and just because they, like yourself, are among God's creatures. Rule six, 
to be of the greatest service to others and to achieve the highest success in healing, self-control is essential. Next to faith and the sincerity of the one who tries to heal us, we must have confidence in his strength. And this is impossible if he is lacking in self-control. A nervous manner, jerky movements, a harsh voice, impatience, or fussiness will nullify almost anything the healer says. Dignity, discipline, courtesy, and considerateness should never be forgotten when treating others or, for that matter, when contacting others in any capacity, for we know not what moment we may wish to help them. Rule 7. Faith in the healer's sincerity. Faith in his strength. And next, willingness to lean upon him. To give oneself over to his care are the other essentials. Skeptics are seldom cured, not because belief is necessary to the cure, but because this turning one's self singly and sincerely toward the healer is essential, and the skeptic will not do this inwardly. He may do so outwardly, but usually his conscious mind has really refused to let the message by, and his mental reservations create an impassable barrier. Everything, from personal habits to one's inner spirit, should receive earnest attention, since the former may, if neglected, make it impossible for one to help sensitive, fastidious patients or friends. Rule eight, never contradict, criticize, or above all, ridicule a sick person, no matter what he says or does. Even well persons cannot stand this, and to permit yourself this luxury with ill ones will offset everything, make you powerless to help them, and add to their illness by adding to their stock of resentments. Sick people, whether their ailments are physical, mental, or both, are super sensitive and most touchy on the very point or weakness that the healer, doctor, or well person feels impelled to criticize. Both know that this wrong attitude in a certain direction is doubtless the very thing that is causing the patient's trouble. But this is the one thing he cannot bear to be told. He cannot bear to think you suspect it. The cure must be achieved, in these cases, indirectly. People who are causing their own illnesses through certain complexes are always afraid you are going to suspect this and will oftentimes go to extreme lengths in their attempts to conceal this from you. Just as one who is concealing something in a closet will often stand in front of the door and try to direct your attention elsewhere. Let them think they have accomplished this. Do not, under any provocation, allow your own egotism to defend itself or you at the cost of an opportunity to help someone else. What if he does insult your intelligence? You insult something within yourself far finer than intelligence when you retaliate to a sick man or woman. Rule 9. Never approach a patient or anyone you wish to help in an unkind, disinterested mood. The greatest scientist in the world, if he came to our bedside impersonally or coldly, cannot help us as much as one of far less knowledge who comes with warm friendship shining in his eyes. Better to die in the presence of those who love us than be manhandled by experts who look upon us as just another case. Rule 10. Direct the patient not to talk of his troubles to others and tell him why. Doing so will only impress the wrong order on his subconscious besides putting into the minds of others the thoughts and visualizations of his illness 
which will be sent back to him in their conversations to re-impress his own mind with disease instead of health. <laughs> 